Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is a spy. That's right. The first spy that I'm aware I've ever spoken to. Uh, not the last, because we have some more coming on. But Marty Peterson, author of The Widow Spy, is my guest today. But first, let's thank our sponsor, which is Cold Email Wizard. Not the Cold Email Wizard, but the Cold Email Wizard Training Kit. Cold Email has changed my life. It has allowed me to grow a business. I do lead generation for companies. And this class, these classes, you should I should say, have actually been the ones that I've used as foundational for how to understand the cold email game. So go to ryanraysenior.com slash cold email. That's ryanraysr.com slash cold email. Sign up for the package. Take the courses. If you're a small business owner, you're in the side hustles, you're trying to grow a startup, you need to learn how to cold email, and this is the class to do it. Okay, back to our guest, which is Martha or Marty, as she likes to go by, Peterson, and her book is The Widow Spy. I enjoyed reading it. My son was uh, with me for most of the time, and so it was fantastic. We'll link to all of the resources again at the show notes, which is at You can just find that by clicking in the link below on your podcast app. And thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, here is Marty Peterson. Marty, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, so this is the first time, to my knowledge, I've talked to a spy. So it's a, I'm a little bit intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> What's the likelihood that I've talked to a spy and did not know it is the question I have. Oh, yeah, that's probably very, very likely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so obviously, we talked about the book in the introduction, The Widow Spy. Um, I was saying my son and I, we listened to it on Audible. Uh, and so he listened to almost all of it. There was a part, what he didn't listen to, he just wasn't around because... Uh, he just went in the truck with me or, or whatever. Um, great book. And you cover kind of the opposite ends of the world, right? So you have Laos and you have Russia. So which one did you like the most, like the least? Kind of compare just the two cultures uh, in, that, in that that late 70s, early 80 era that you were there. The um, time I spent in Laos, of course, it's, you know, in the, in the hot time, it is uh, 98 degrees at eight o'clock in the morning. And of course, in Moscow, it was minus 40 in the coldest of winter. So the, the temperatures were of amazingly extreme. Um, the, the, the world of Laos was very primitive and very um, kind of uh, like an island. We couldn't get anywhere from where we were except by plane. And um, we were really just there one paved road in the in the town and um grass huts basically it flooded in the wet season and dry season it was just blistering hot of course in in moscow it was gray and big buildings wide avenues um very um alien um is all i can say whereas Laos was very friendly and outgoing. Laos, uh, Moscow was very cold and alien. Uh, it was difficult to live there as well. Yeah, it's sort of the book you talk about kind of in Laos, the kind of Laos, the, the mentality of the locals that Americans never die. Uh, and then you go to Russia where, I'm not gonna say every Russian wants you to die as an American, but, but, the, but their mentality on American death is probably a 180. 
Well, um, they, of course, didn't know, you know, I, at the time they were nice to us, but certainly I didn't make any friends there and uh, they didn't know who CIA was. So it was all Americans, you're right, were kind of the enemy, but day to day, it didn't feel that way. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, let's go back to Laos for a second. Obviously the book's called Widow Spy. Um, your husband at the time was in the CIA. Um, he dies in a, in a, in a tragic event. Um, and then you decide to go in and, I mean, you were working for the CIA, but like kind of go through the full, the full program, if you will, later on. Talk to me about that because listening to the book, the, this, the heartache of, you know, losing your husband, um, especially in a foreign country. And I'm sure there there's all kinds of just crazy emotions and thoughts. And just, it's bizarre just to be in that country and then to lose your husband. And then you lose him the way that you did. Um, and then just the, the process of thinking, you know what, now I want to go back and double down for this agency that not, not, it's not responsible, but it's tied to the death of my loved one. Well, it didn't quite, feel that way. Um, when you lose your husband at, or wife at 27, you really are in, in nowhere land. Nobody can tell you how to feel, what to think, or what to do. And I was into a place where I really didn't know the next day what I would be doing. I had no clue what my life ahead would be. So when a friend suggested I, I move you know, try to get a job with the CIA. I thought, well, that sounded as reasonable as anything. I had no set plan. You know, I, my plans were blown up when John died. So um, with that, I think um, I, I thought, well, this sounds as good as anything. So I proceeded and applied. And then I took every day and every step just as a process. I don't think emotionally I was uh, there. I was, of course, grieving and, and deeply hurt. And so this this was kind of the line of least resistance. So I went forward. In, in the book, it seems that John was very proud of his work um, and dedicated to his work. And so I'm sure that probably helped push you in this direction as well, because, you know, you know, you, you have a, your husband's dead, but he was very proud to be doing what he was doing. Yes. He loved working for the CIA. He loved the work he did in Laos, no matter how difficult or perhaps pointless, you know, it became in the long run. And I guess the, the feeling that I was doing what he intended to do did buoy me along and help me kind of get emotionally invested in, in my path forward. Uh, I think, I think he would have been very proud of me uh, that I took up the flag and started again on his path. What's your favorite memory of John? Um, sitting in a bar, just the two of us, we had a little bar at home and, and laughing and, and being just in love and fun and, planning our life ahead. And yeah, he, he was a wonderful spirited friend. He had, yeah, he was my best. And always picture us sitting at that bar, drinking a beer or a, a, a shot of this or that and laughing. And yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you touched on it there a second ago about um, maybe the futility of Laos or 
uh, at least a perception of that. Just it, you know, we're going to contrast this with Russia in a second, but how as as a CIA, either a, a wife of a CIA officer or a CIA officer yourself, how do you mentally wake up and go, OK, hey, this is a cause worth potentially losing my life over um, or putting someone else's life in danger um, versus, you know, maybe I don't have all the information and I have to um, you know, make it, you know, just trust the orders. Like, how do you do that? Because some of these spots, especially with like Laos, potentially Russia would seem to be different. I would imagine it's probably harder to put on that game face and get up and go every day. Not hard at all. It's, it's the, the spirit of why you do get up and why you take on this challenge. I always felt that um, John was ready to shoot out the door and go on his way and be, be there and be really involved. And, and when I got to Moscow, of course, I felt the same way. I always wondered what everyone else was doing because I always felt I was making the difference. Um, I really felt it very personally. So I, I, it, it will never be useless or purposeless. It, it really was um, why I got up in the morning. Did you find that you have deeper relationships with your coworkers when you were in Russia or Laos? Or was it harder to make deep relationships because of the, the potential of someone being a counter spy or whatever? In, in Moscow, I, I only saw my CIA court, uh, co-workers in a vault where we all had our office. And the rest of the day and most of the time, I was with other people in the embassy. And yes, I didn't make a lot of friends because I always had to be ready to change my plans to answer the operational call. So I didn't make a lot of close friends, but the CIA co-workers, we were very close. Yeah. And so obviously in the book, there is a, a um, I don't know, you, there's probably a proper tactical term, but a target, a person you're trying to flip, a counter operative that you guys are working with, just, just not necessarily on this particular um, individual, but like, what is that process like practically uh, when you guys were doing, how long does it take you to build the rapport to trust that this Russian or whomever is trustworthy because you're now putting your life in their hands as well? Right. Well, the 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 recruitment process of an of an asset, an agent is is very long, and it takes, like you said, building that rapport, linking the two of you in a way that um, they will feel they can trust you. Um, and I think most people think that their agents do trust us. We try never to put ourselves in a position where the agent could compromise us. So, um, and the asset, the agent has to prove to us that he is the real thing. And we do that by tests, basically, and seeing what kind of um, production he has, what kind of secrets he's willing to give us. So, it's a long process and a continuing process throughout the whole life of a, of an agent case. Mm. Now, now one of the things that in the book that you go through is kind of your unique advantage of being in Moscow, uh, maybe unpack that a little bit for the listeners. What was your kind of unique advantage compared to some of the other case officers there? Well, I was um, the first woman assigned there as a case officer and I was single. Um, and I had a nickname uh, which was Party Marty. And my ob observable person, who I was to everyone, was a person who enjoyed 
drinking beer and enjoying dancing and being with people and socializing and just being a happy person. But you know what, Ryan, that's who I am. I am that person. So it wasn't hard to sell that. Of course, I had to be very careful about my behavior would lead anyone to doubt that that's who I was. Uh, so I had to perform my life on a stage like someone was watching me. So my life had to look like it made sense. Mm. So yeah, that, that's a great, uh, that's a great point there because I was, I was talking to um, someone the other day about, you know, going to these conferences where you meet a lot of people. And at the end, like I have to go home like two or three hours just to recharge. Like I like being around people. Um, I'm very, be very loud, very vocal, but at the end of the day, like I have to go home and recharge. Or if I don't, like I can't, I can't go do it for two or three days. Like this exhausts me. I can't, I, I think that I could see agents potentially maybe trying to project something that they can't uphold for long periods of time and That's causing right. doubt for people that are watching them. That's right. And that was the, that one of the tests we had is that person, the same person over a period of time, is he predictable? Is he responsive to our requirements? And those kind of tests really are very revealing um, about whether this agent is really being truthful with us and whether he is in it for the long haul. Yeah. One of the things that I found um, striking was I watched the show, the Americans um, and uh I'm sure you've seen it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so for the listeners who haven't seen it in the Americans, um, they are changing costumes, you know, from scene to scene, basically they're, they're this character, they're that character. Um, you, you weren't being surveilled. You mentioned in the book, but you didn't seem to change costumes either. And so you were just being yourself. It, it, and I was, I was curious, like, okay, is this norm? Because the costume thing, when you watch it, it's like, it's pretty impressive, but also, yes, also you go, well, huh. Could someone pretend to your point? Could someone pretend to be four to five different characters in Moscow? Because that's a lot of facades to keep up. Right. Well, of course, um, they and the Americans weren't being followed and weren't being watched. And that would be the difference. So they could blend in. But they changed their location with the change in their costume. So they were that person in the apartment with that woman. And then he changed totally the, the environment where he was and another person. But in Moscow, I mean, we were in the same fishbowl and that's where we were. Of course, when I went out at night um, I and for a, a operational drop, mm -hmm. I had to change just my external clothes so that I would blend in uh, to the the city and other pedestrians that I passed. Mm. Yeah, listening to the book, you, you, you talk about the end kind of you know, a drill and dub at the end of your time in Moscow. And I, I was wondering about that because I, I can't, you know, like you're going and you're looking for these signs and you don't think you're being followed, but you technically never know. I mean, there's a few times in the book where it seems quite clear you're not being followed, but there, you know, when, when you're on the street or whatever, it's theoretically possible. Like, when you come home from the end of the day, when you're out casing spots or making a dead drop, um, like how long would it take for you just to unwind to go, whew, I got away with another one. Yeah, well, that's why when I would um, get back to my car, because I always started my counter surveillance run in a car and I always packed in the car 
uh, bag with normal clothes and, um, and a can of beer, can of Carlsberg beer. So when I would get back to my car after it was all over, no matter how warm it was, which was rare, but it was generally pretty chilled. I would drink my beer and I would breathe, you know, cause I think you really with adrenaline, you don't breathe a whole lot. You're, yeah. you're really yeah. on the edge. Right. Yeah. And so maybe for the, for, for the audience here unpack. So you weren't being surveilled, obviously um, there at the end that changes a little bit, but, but for the most of your time in Moscow, they didn't think that you were a spy. They, they had no idea. They didn't know you kind of caught them off guard. That was the beauty of it. Um, but you do tell a story of a husband and wife and, you know, they're doing a dead drop in the KGB had already figured out who they were and they captured them. Um, did you notice maybe that you were able to relax a little bit more um, you're still kind of on high alert, but maybe a little bit more compared to those agents who were constantly being followed. Yes, I'm, I'm sure I had a different, um, I don't know, maybe it was demeanor or perception of my environment. When you're not followed, um, you're, you're still doing the same thing and you're still on high alert, like you said. Um, but, um, uh, everything you would do if you were being followed all the time would be scrutinized. Whereas I could stop, um, I could look at my map, um, I could do things like that, which probably a couple who was out being followed wouldn't do that. It would be alerting. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. It's just thinking about just living like this. And so I have, I'll go back to Moscow, but real quick, how long from when you came back to DC, was it before you didn't have to look over your shoulder, making sure no one was following you and you could just kind of walk around and, and live a normal life? Um, I, I, I don't know when that faded. Um, but you know, as, as a single woman, um, and I taught my daughter this too, um, you never can be too safe on the street and you need to watch behind you and see if anyone's following you. I, I do it, I think, even today, not with any intent and not certainly with any fear, but just it's a habit. It's just awareness of your environment. You mentioned the woman, you being a woman, obviously, um, and, and there was concern about sending you to Russia uh, as a woman that they might send some big, strong Russian to seduce you. And I, I found that kind of laughable because it would seem it would seem to be the opposite fear would be more true that sending the men over there where they might send some Russian woman would be far more risky because that's just you know like it seemed like that would be the bigger vulnerability point is sending men to where they could have these women constantly berating them would be a a, hard, a easier way to flip the, the agents. Um, yes. What are your thoughts on that? Is that is that true? Or is that is that me being misguided in my judgment here? What what are your thoughts? Well, I don't think there's really any different and the. The chief of a station in our um, CIA office there was also single and he was um, late 40s and he and I would laugh, you know, they haven't sent in the lovers yet, you know, and he would laugh waiting for Olga to come and I would <laughs> laugh saying, well, Igor will be here shortly. And of course, <laughs> it never happened. That's that's pretty movie, movie scene kind of thing. And certainly not in Moscow. They wouldn't do it there. It, they'd do it in another area in the world. Mm. I, I did find it interesting. Uh, you talk about that in the book about how uh, you, know, you couldn't derobe because you had all these antennas and cords yeah, and wires. Right. And that never comes up in the spa movies, though. 
<laughs> no, it doesn't. No. <laughs> How long does it take just to get used to wearing all those different apparatuses? I'm, I'm sure it's got to be uncomfortable. Well, after a while, you got used to it. And I found that um, at first I had this little radio tucked down in the front of my bra. And then when I would lean over or turn, it would creep up. So I invention sent to Moscow in um, February of 76, and it was Velcro. So I made a little t-shirt pouch out of the Velcro and put it around the side of my bra so it wouldn't creep. So after a while, you got very used to it. But if you went to the Marine House and, and a guy asked you to dance, you had to be very careful. It wasn't a slow dance and certainly that his hand wouldn't clink against his radio on your side. <laughs> it was always very funny. How far do you think uh, during the period that you were in Russia, were the Russians behind the U.S. in technology? You know, I think in the mid seventies and the height of the Cold War, we were we were ahead in our weaponry and that kind of thing. Uh, this, of course, all predated computers and all any cell phones or anything like that. So I think that was not an issue. Um, but clearly, we were ahead in day to day conveniences and life. Um, technology like washing machines and dishwashers and all the mechanics of of life that we take for granted and and they just didn't have them there you know i even think this agent wore contact lenses that he had bought in colombia and they didn't have contact lenses because the russians hadn't invented them yet that was how they viewed life if if they didn't invent it it didn't it didn't exist and the general, uh, you know, if you come across a Russian and they would ask you something, would they be aware or curious at all? Or would they view the world as kind of flat, for lack of a better term, that, that whatever America had, Russia had and vice versa? Or did they understand that there was a, a discrepancy? No, they had no idea. And they, they believed the um, propaganda that they had everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that, that's, that has to be just thinking from a, you know, um, a propaganda standpoint to kind of deconstruct that for someone if you're trying to flip them has to be hard because this is and i've talked about this on the podcast that um you know today we could all get on whatsapp or wherever twitter we could, we could see what's going on in the world um, back right. then though you couldn't and so if you're trying to convince someone hey what your the world that you live in is not really the, the world that everyone else lives in it had right. to be really hard to prove that back in the 70s well, you wouldn't ha necessarily have to prove it to anyone in moscow but to the soviets officials who traveled overseas. I think that was one of the call cards of our recruitment. You know, this is what life is like in the rest of the world. And this is what you can have. Um, that, that's very venal and certainly not how we recruited them, but it was one of the benefits of, of offering, you know, at the end of the, of the road here, we can offer you a life in the U.S. with, with benefits that you have no clue about. Hmm. so we have a few minutes left here if you had to do it all over again would you go back through going to laos and eating by the river the the nasty thing they're trying to serve you going to the cold in russia you know uh, uh you know losing a husband like you've lived an extraordinary life um was it worth it you think 
Absolutely. It was worth it. And, you know, I wrote the book to, to kind of put it down on paper, but the more I wrote, the more I realized how many and wonderful experience I had um, in my life. Um, Laos was a piece that I will treasure forever. I can see it and smell it. Um, and Moscow is the same thing. And I'm fascinated by, you know, that time in my life. And then of course, seeing what's current today. Have you been able to go back to Moscow since you left or are you permanently banned? I don't know what the fall of the, of the, of the wall, if that changes that or not. Oh yeah. Right. Um, I was declared persona non grata and that means I can never go back and I would never go back. I have no curiosity about it. I saw it at maybe what I can say at its best because it was truly communist. It was truly a controlled society. And now it's a, kind of a gray place. I mean, it's still very controlled, but uh, it didn't, ha- I mean, it had the pageantry of being the communist world with the big posters and the marching troops and the, the weapons in Red Square. All right, so I'll leave you with these last two questions. First, what is the biggest misconception people like me who are not spies, not that I'm telling you at least, um, have about the CIA or the spy world? Um, what do we get the w- wrong the most? I think that I think what you get wrong is that um, we don't do um, bad things. We don't kill people. Um, we don't uh, entrap people. And I think most Americans would think that we use blackmail to to recruit our agents, and um, that's that's just not who we are. Um, and I think that you also would see that our agents who we recruit become very committed to the US. And I don't think that's ever demonstrated in spy movies and that kind of thing. Um, from, from your time in Laos and uh, Russia, um, who, obviously other than your husband who passed away, who is the one person that you think about the most? Oh, I, I think I reflect on my agent's life in Moscow, Trigon. He was a real hero and he took risks and chances and ended up dying. And, and I do reflect on him um, and, and, you know, hope, how can you say that it was all worth it? When you die, you can't say that, but that in some measure, his life was improved, yeah. Okay. Well, folks, go check out the book. You want to hear about Trigon, what happened, how he died, uh, Persona Non Grata, all those things are unpacked in the book there. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story. And I mean, there are some times in the book where <laughs> I had to sit there like, I mean, I know you make it because I have a podcast scheduled with you. But <laughs> I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, is, is she going to get beat up? Is this, is this going to be, you know, what's, what's going to happen? And just the dedication to sit out there for, you know, a couple hours in the snow and not move and then hear the footsteps and not know if it's the right person. Uh, yeah. I would have at least one beer in the car. <laughs> Probably some Russian vodka too. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> well, Marty, this has been wonderful. Again, the book, the widow spot, we'll link to that in the show notes. Anywhere else you want to send people to. Uh, the team house had a very good podcast and uh, cold war conversations, another podcast. And my website is Marty, no, is widowspy.com. 
And I think they will find a, a wealth of information about that era and what it was like on my uh, website, widowspy.com. Okay, we will link to all of that in the show notes, which can be found at ranraysenior.com. Marty, thank you for this. Thank you for the book. I found it to be, um, you know, I, I didn't know going into the book, obviously, obviously titled Widow Spy, When Your Husband Died. So that was kind of going through that, uh, like, oh, wow, okay. I, I was expecting that to maybe be later, so have different circumstances. So um, it's not written like a thriller, but it kind of has these moments that are very thriller-esque where you just, you build up and you go, oh my gosh, what is going to happen here? And so I really enjoyed it. It was very well written. And thank you for your time today. And thank you. I enjoyed the conversation.